0: We have the the kids in service with us this morning, um, because we don't know if this is Christmas morning or Christmas Eve service, and so we're mashing it all in together. Um, If you don't have one of those fill-ins, though, put up your hand, and one of our ushers will get you one of those. Kids, we want you to have um, a little sheet of paper. Fill that in. um, And if you will fill that in, I'll meet you in the foyer after the service with candy canes, of course. Um, so fill that in, hopefully that helps you follow along and, and understand um, what, we're, what we're looking at. Um, more importantly, if you don't have a Bible in your hand right now, put your hand up and uh, we want you to have God's word open in front of you on your lap. Um, we, we wanna walk together through God's truth, through God's word. Um, And uh, so we want you to have that in front of you. Uh, And you can open your Bible um, to Isaiah chapter nine. That's where we're gonna be spending our time this morning. Isaiah chapter nine, if you can find that and uh, stick a finger in there. Uh, It is Christmas Eve. Kids, anybody excited for tomorrow? Okay, one kid, anyone excited for tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah why are you excited for tomorrow because there's presents because there's gifts to unwrap right it's exciting tomorrow you're gonna wake up in the morning a little bit later than usual so your parents have time to sleep in right you're gonna sneak quietly down the stairs and enjoy a breakfast with the family and read the Christmas story and then presents right now let me ask you parents too. you can join in here how many of you are immediate unwrappers and how many of you are guessers some of you like to you like to get the present you just want to dig right in paper's coming off i want to grab it others are going to take a few minutes yeah who's who's my immediate unwrappers you're just going for it okay now who's with me on this i'm a guesser i want to weigh it shake it it's so big uh weigh some yeah i think i know what this is i want to figure it out right um that's where i'm at and uh and it drove my mom not as i was a kid she had this rule if i guessed it i couldn't get it so i just have to kind of smile at her like yeah we know um we want to guess we want to figure it out i, I love that moment of just kind of beginning to unwrap it in my mind i i think i have an idea i'm getting there uh, I, I know what this is gonna be um, now the reason we give gifts at christmas is we celebrate that God has given us the greatest of all gifts. The gift that he gave at Christmas was his son for us. And when it comes to this gift um, for thousands of years, God had been giving little hints, little pieces of information. Every story of the Old Testament, every prophecy of the Old Testament, um, every promise is this little piece of information about what this gift would be like. It's little tidbits, and, and so we can walk through the Old Testament, and, and again, over thousands of years, they had been putting together their, their best guess of what this gift would be, and in fact, it's so clear and so well done that even after the coming of Christ, we can look back into the Old Testament and be putting pieces together to better understand who He is and what He came to do. So this morning, um, We're going back. We're going back into Isaiah chapter 9, um, verses 6 and 7. And and in these verses, God tells us a lot about what this gift would be, who this gift would be. Specifically, verses 6 and 7, he tells us about a king who would bring in a glorious kingdom. That's what we're looking at this morning. Um, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 will be this, this kind of preliminary unwrapping of this gift, unwrapping the gift of the, the king and his kingdom. Kids, you tracking with, getting that? So let's look, um, we're, gonna, we're gonna start at uh, verse one of Isaiah nine. Last week, we went through these first five verses, but let's, let's read it all together. So Isaiah nine, starting in verse one, but there will be no gloom, for her who was in anguish. In a former time, he brought about contempt into the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, Father, we gather together this Christmas Eve morning in joyful celebration, with our hearts full, remembering this amazing gift that you have given. Father, help us now as we open your word, as we look into your truth. God, open our eyes to see it all the more clearly. Lord, would you soften our hearts? Lord? You know we are often so blind, so hard of hearing, so hard of heart. God, would you break through that this morning that we would see in your word, your amazing kindness, generosity, mercy and grace toward us who are so undeserving. Lord, that we would leave this place um, comforted by the glory of this coming King and rejoicing in your goodness and your faithfulness. Lord, would you be at work in our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at verses one to five, and we see what this coming king will accomplish, what he would do. he would bring his people from gloom to glory. It's kind of past tense. He's going to free them from the darkness. Gloom to glory, he would come and, and rescue his people out of the darkness. This is amazing promise. I don't know if you've noticed, maybe you haven't watched the news your entire life or interacted with any other human being or paid any attention to your own heart. This world is a broken place. It's a broken place. There is darkness. Our own hearts and lives are, are corrupted and broken by, by our sin by the sin of those around us, by the the curse of sin in this world. And and, and we live under the wrath of God. The result is we live in this place that that Isaiah calls deep darkness, the gloom of anguish. It's not very optimistic. Looking forward though to Jesus, to this promised gift that's, that's coming, he says it would be it would be like light shining into the darkness, bringing joy. And he explains that joy as like the joy of the harvest when all of a sudden you go from 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 barely making it through on the last few rations to the harvest has come in and there's plenty and, a, and abundance. It would be joy like the soldiers dividing the spoil when when the military army has has finally had victory and the enemy is defeated and now you're splitting up their treasure, their wealth. It would be joy like at the harvest, joy as, as dividing the spoil because he would put an end to oppression, an end to war. All the, the warriors' boots, all the soldiers' garments would be burned in the fire, never, never to be needed again. He would bring peace, peace between us and God, and eventually ultimate, perfect, complete peace. That's, that's what he would do. That's what verses one to five are, are building up. But the question that still, that still lingers is how? How is he going to do it? And the answer then comes in verse six. That four there at the start of verse six is this cataclysmic shift in this prophecy. The question of how he would do it is answered by who he is. How he would do it, it's answered by who he is. So look at verse six. And first here we see who this child, this son, this coming gift will be. Here we begin unwrapping the king. Who is this king? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be a ruler. He's going to be... A king, now it's a little bit odd to say that the child, the, the baby would be a king, right? We've, we're so familiar with these verses, we, we, we miss some of the weird stuff because we're comfortable with it. But imagine being an Israelite with the Assyrian army on the horizon, this massive, deadly horde, and you're told, oh, there's gonna be a baby king. Uh, that doesn't seem helpful. Um, this is odd. But the reason that's there is this, this idea of the child, the, the son, it, it's tying this promise in with the promises of the offspring that have been building already throughout the Old Testament. We read them uh, earlier this morning, John read uh, a few of them for us. That the, 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 the woman would bear a son, an offspring, and that offspring would crush the head of the serpent. And then to Abraham, that through his offspring, the whole world would be blessed. And of course, and we'll see more clearly in a few minutes, the promise to David, that one of his offspring would sit on the throne forever. This use of the word offspring or or seed has been kind of building all the way through, tying these promises together. And so the the language here of a child will be born, a, a son will be given. It's tying it in with those promises. It's lumping them in together. It's building the the continuity. And notice the way this is phrased. To us a child is born, to us a son is given. Child is born, yes, Jesus was born. But then to us a son is given. That, That clarifies a little bit reminds us this isn't just a child born by happenstance as so many children will be born, um, but this is a son who is given. This is a gift from the Lord. God is at work here. Interestingly, it also leaves room as the Old Testament often does. There's just a, a loophole left open in the language that gives room for the virgin birth and the reality of the Trinity, the son who is eternal come down jesus the second person of the trinity was not born on that day did not come in existence on that day but he was given on that day at christmas jesus who already existed from eternity past was given to us the son is given the angel Gabriel picks up on this language when he, when he says in his announcement of Jesus, Luke 2.11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the one. This is the one who will, who will set his people free, who would bring in this new glorious kingdom. And then we get some detail about who he would be. He begins to expand on who this child, this son would be. And he he gives us these these four names. Now the idea of a name here is not like a proper title, right? It's not like his middle name and his other middle name and his other middle name. Um, What it means is these things would be true of him. So true of him that they would be like his name. This is what people would call him. So this king, will be given four names. This is who he would be. The Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. These titles amazing these are these are mind we, we could you could spend weeks drilling down on on each of these and just unwrapping more of who this king would be and no doubt scholars and scribes to the ages did just that um, let's just take a few minutes and and unpack each of these just briefly first this wonderful counselor wonderful counselor means that he will be an all wise king both of these words need a little bit of clarification here wonderful it means so much more than how we often use it. We are so guilty of taking these, these grand words and just kind of bringing them down. Like, that was a wonderful meal. That was a wonderful vacation. Really? What wonders happened at your meal? What glorious miracle happened when you were on vacation that made it a, a wonderful vacation? That's what that means. That's what Isaiah means. He will be wonderful, miraculous counselor. Counselor. Jesus will not be your therapist. Many people would like to think of him this way. Jesus will be really good at patting you on the back, hearing about your childhood, unpacking your trauma, grieving with you. That's not what this means. Think more along the lines of a political advisor or a military advisor, a counselor. He is the one who plans and leads with wisdom and insight. Isaiah 11.2 says this about him, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus is coming as the absolute pinnacle of wisdom because he has the knowledge and the wisdom of God himself. This reaches of his wisdom would be without without limits. Ephesians 1.11, In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things according to the counsel of his will. His his wisdom will be without limits. How will he rescue us from darkness? How will this child save us? Well, he is all wise. He is the wonderful counselor. That's how. Next. This is just mind-blowing. This child will be called mighty God. And 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 many have tried to debate this and and and, the, and tried to translate it other ways. He'll be a, a great hero. Um it's not it. It's clear. It's it's unavoidable. One chapter later, Isaiah 10:21, Isaiah is talking about. Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, no doubt who he's speaking about and then calls him Mighty God. That title is applied to this coming child and it's clear as day. Mighty God means he will be the all powerful king, all powerful like God is all powerful. It's as if God isn't enough, he will be God, that that would be top of the food chain, top of the pyramid, but he adds to that mighty God just to be redundant. This would have been hard to understand for those first readers working through this. What does that mean? How is the child called mighty God? They they don't understand the Trinity. These things haven't been revealed in clarity yet. How is this rescuer both a gift from God and mighty God? They would have been holding these things in tension, waiting for clarity to come course of Jesus Colossians 2 9 says for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily acts uh, sorry Hebrews 1 3 he Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power Jesus is the, the second person of the Trinity come down. It is mighty God himself with flesh on. And so he's all powerful. He has ultimate power. This gift of God that he gives to his people is this, this all wise, all powerful king. He's a wonderful counselor, mighty God. The third title then, again, is odd. It, it makes us stretch and try to understand what's going on this child the son will be called everlasting father again this this is a god title the son would be a father now we're prone to judge by earthly fathers who are sinful and imperfect and broken and and some dreadfully so but this speaks of father in the best possible sense the the ultimate father tells us that that he will be a perfectly caring king perfectly caring he's not cold and calculated and disinterested he's not a king far off sitting in heaven doesn't really care he loves those under him he loves them like a like a father loves his own children And we don't often use the the language of father for Jesus, but but he definitely has these fatherly characteristics. John 14, 18, Jesus himself says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. He's not leaving them like orphans. In what way is he coming to them? He's coming to them as a father. He cares for his own the way a, a good Father cares for and and even adopts children into his family. This king who is infinitely wise, ultimately powerful, is also intimately loving. Finally, he'll be called the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace means he will be the king who brings Shalom. Shalom is the the Hebrew word there. Um, Languages are tricky. There's words that are close and there's words that aren't close and you're trying to, to translate complexity from one language to the next with nuance and all of that. Shalom just means so much more than what we often mean by peace. This is so much more than just a lack of fighting. It's not just a kind of a sense of calm. It means wholeness. It means health. It means robust, complete life. It means fullness of of rest, just all-encompassing peace and wellness. That's the king that we're talking about. He is the Prince of Shalom. That's how he is going to bring light into the darkness. That's how he's going to rescue his people because this son given by God will will rule victorious and he will be the all wise, wonderful counselor. He'll be the all powerful, mighty God. He'll be the, the intimately caring, everlasting father and the perfect prince of ultimate peace. Man, there are times when you get a package and you shake it and you feel the weight of it in your hands and you begin to think, oh man, I got this already. Or maybe that is not what I meant when I asked for that. And there's the disappointment that sets in as you begin to figure out what it is. There are other times when you shake it and you weigh it and you think, no, it can't be. That's too much, that's, that's too big. And you, as you begin to unwrap, you catch a glimpse of the packaging, it, it is. It's it's way more than you expected. It's way more than than you ever could have asked for. So much more than you dared even to hope for. That's what Jesus would be like. The more we dive into who he is, the more we kind of peel back the layers of who this coming king would be and explore this, the the meaning, the wonder, the glory of Christmas just, just continues to expand. This is who this king is better than we ever could have expected. It's better than we ever could have hoped for, ever could have asked for. And the wonder, the majesty of who he is as king then flows out into what kind of kingdom he will have. Verses one to five from, from last week talk about what's being shed, what's being left behind, the, the gloom, the, the anguish, the slavery from, to death and sin. Those things are going away. Now, as we we move into verse seven, where are we going? What will come out of this? Look with me at at verse seven here. Let's unwrap a bit more of the kingdom. Unwrapping the kingdom. Look at verse seven. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and hold it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a common phrase, advertising and, and elsewhere. We talk about the, the gift that keeps on giving, right? This is definitely qualifies jesus is the ultimate gift that keeps on giving because of who he is this coming king is going to is going to bring in a kingdom that is the ultimate gift that keeps on giving first we see right off the bat this kingdom will be pervasive 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 means everywhere it'll cover everything, there there will be no end. The the increase of his government will be without end. Now increase is a bit of a odd word there. Um, Obviously his kingdom will increase until it has covered everything and then it won't continue to, to grow. Maybe expanse would be a good word you could use there. The kingdom of Jesus will not be contained. It will take over fully, completely. There will be no part of this world, no part of reality itself that will not be under this kingdom fully, completely, the the reign of this king. Now, someone asked me last week, after after last week's sermon, um, when will these things be fulfilled? Like, when is this happening or will this happen? Um, And and that's a fantastic question to just clarify as as we walk through this. Is this what happened at the first Christmas when Jesus was born? Or is this happening here and now in our day and age, or is this going to happen at the end, when when Jesus returns, at the second coming? And the answer is, all of the above, kind of. When Jesus came in the manger, he came as king, right? That was never up for debate. He wasn't voted in. In fact, he was already king. He's the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. He was already king over all, without challenge, without question, without exception, period. The world is his, the heavenly realm is his. It was his from before he created the earth. And yet, is it fully his? Is this right here, right now? What his kingdom looks like? War, rebellion, sorrow, sickness, death, with people who hate him and oppose him? No. No, this isn't the fullness of it. He is king, but he has clearly not fully imposed his kingdom. Not yet. when he does, it will have no limits, no end. He will rule not only to the breadth of of the corners of creation, but actually into the depth of every human heart. Get the significance of this. The the kingdom of God will, will have no opposing kingdoms, no one holding out against him, no one challenging him. Not that they won't be victorious, but there will not even be a challenge. No pockets of rebellion here and there. In fact, it will not even have that one person who is outwardly obedient compliant but secretly a little bit rebellious in his heart none of it all that will be gone and so he is king now in one sense and yet the fullness of that kingdom will only happen at his second coming and the final judgment so the kingdom of Jesus has started and in one sense, it started before the creation of the world. In another sense, the kingdom of Jesus came when, when Jesus came in the manger. As he grew and taught and people began to trust him and submit to him. It continues to grow today. As the Holy Spirit transforms the hearts of sinners, as they come to, to trust him, to submit to his rule, to, to love him. When someone submits to him and trusts him today, they would enter into that kingdom. That's why Matthew 4, 17 summarizes the, the teachings of Jesus. think from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, because the kingdom is here, is coming and that kingdom will continue to grow in expanse as the gospel was preached all around the world. But that kingdom will not be completed. That kingdom will not come in its fullness until Jesus returns. On that day, that glorious day, not only will every rebellious kingdom fall and collapse, but every rebellious heart that stands against him will be condemned to judgment on that day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord some entering into the joy of their master others entering into his wrath at that point he brings in the new creation the new earth where even the earth is put back into submission under him as it ought to be and that means no more earthquakes and no more hurricanes and tornadoes no more chaos decay death all those things End as the world is brought fully completely into submission under his rule that will be the final expanse of his kingdom that's where we're going so this kingdom has begun right now those of us who trust in him have a, kind of a, a foot in that kingdom we exist in that kingdom but we continue to live in this divided sinful broken world and we wait We wait for the day of his second coming when that kingdom will come fully and completely. So his kingdom is and will be pervasive. Secondly, his kingdom will be the promised kingdom. The promised kingdom. Isaiah says he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. God had promised David that one of his descendants would rule and reign forever. The covenant that God made with David was was the most recent of these offspring promises that had been building. They're all pointing forward to the Messiah. We read a few of those already this morning. Uh, God is saying here, this son, this coming king, he will be that promised king, the one you've been waiting for in the line of David, in the line of all of these promises. He'll be the one that fulfills all of them. He will take up the mantle of David. He's going to rule like David did, actually so much more than David did, but David was, was the best of the rulers of Israel. He ruled with, with justice and righteousness, brought prosperity and peace. Of course, we know David failed in many ways. This new king in the line of David would have none of that. It would be the kingdom that was promised. This ties it into to two other aspects. Thirdly, His kingdom will be perfect. The first line says the increase of his, not only his government, but of peace. There will be no end. Just like it will be pervasive in in its complete stretch, it will be pervasive in complete peace. We're told here now that, that he will uphold it with justice and with righteousness. The kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom of perfection. Complete justice, righteousness, ultimate peace. We are so accustomed, we don't even see it anymore. Every time we go to the polls to vote, we vote with our nose plugged, right? You just kinda cringe and endure it because I guess, I guess this candidate is slightly less horrible than all of the others. That's it, that's the best we can, that's the best we can put forward. And then we watch in the House of Commons or the Congress, and we're like, really, guys? This is our best and brightest? This is what we have? Not Jesus, right? 1 John 3, 5 tells us, you know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. There is no corruption. 1 Peter two twenty two he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. It's Peter. Peter spent three years walking with Jesus, living with Jesus, and said, no, he never lied. He never sinned. Any of your friends say that? Your spouse say that about you? I doubt it. Can you imagine a political leader who's never told a lie? That seems like a stretch. These are not empty campaign promises. Jesus will be king, king who is all-wise, all-powerful, perfectly caring, the Prince of Peace. He's perfect. And so of course his kingdom will be perfect. Once again, let's look at when, where, how. Well, we have a taste of that right now, right? We, got, we have morsels off that table. Those who trust in Jesus today, we, we have peace with God. That's primary, that's, that's huge. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice on the cross. All those who trust in him are, are reconciled to God. T- today, we have peace with him. To a lesser degree, we're reconciled to one another. As the church, we have, we have peace together amongst ourselves. Jesus said, they will know that you're my disciples by your love. Now, some of you are thinking, really? Yeah, not perfectly. I'm with you, right? That's what it ought to be, but we're still sinners. We still live with that reality. So we struggle. We get we get tastes of that as we pray together and worship together. We see glimpses of the unity that we have in Christ, though not perfectly. Sometimes it's faint. Sometimes it's flickering. But when he comes, when he returns, then our peace with God will be made complete. We will be with him and our peace with one another will be complete. It will be the end of sin, the end of division, the end of strife and conflict of every kind done. The book of Isaiah paints this picture a few different times. One of them is is Isaiah 11, verses six to nine. The wolf shall lay down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. The little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's peace. That's peace right down to snakes and lions. That's peace. That that hits on a, a deep longing in all of our hearts, doesn't it? We ache for that. We don't even know it. We have this glorious, beautiful taste of that peace here today. But when he returns, we'll know perfect peace, we'll know complete peace. That's, that's the new creation. Fullness of shalom, of, of happiness, of wholeness, of fullness of rest. So his kingdom will be, will be pervasive. It will be the promised kingdom. It will be a perfect kingdom. His kingdom will be permanent, permanent. Isaiah says, he will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It will be without end. This again is part of the, the promises to David that his son would, would reign on his throne for eternity. The angel Gabriel speaking to, to Mary, uh, the, the young virgin girl, he, he picks up on this language as well. Behold, uh, Luke 1:31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. No end. We try to to conceptualize that, and you think of no further, 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 but but you can't stop. It just keeps going. There will be no end. It, it, It breaks the mind. And this is played out in, in what is probably the, the most well-known line in the most well-known Christmas production of all time. It's right out of Scripture, right? The audience stands as the choir and the orchestra begin to play the Hallelujah Chorus of Handel's Messiah. And Where does it climax? Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That's it. Forever and ever, perfect, pervasive peace that will never end. That's a good gift. Once again, this kingdom has begun. It's started. And we get to enter it. Here and now, we get a a taste of it. Jesus says, John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life, Jesus speaks, past tense. Those who trust in him have it. How do you enter that kingdom? You enter it here and now through faith in Christ. You have eternal life. And yet, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul reminds us that there is yet a transition that must take place. Verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable put on the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, that means die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. The, the kingdom of Jesus is not just a, a tweak on the kingdom of this world. It is not the imperishable, not the, the perishable. It's not this flesh just kind of being tweaked. The, the, the perishable must put on the imperishable. Jesus returns the second time the final trumpet will sound. Some will have already be dead and those who are dead will be raised from the grave. Those who are alive at that time will be transformed and we will receive immortal bodies, glorified bodies, eternal bodies without corruption, without without the twistedness of, of sin and decay and all of the brokenness. Most importantly, without death. That's the full entrance into that eternal kingdom. That's that's coming on the horizon. And so we have have a taste of it now, we have elements of it though, that we see it only as as like dimly in reflection, but when he returns, we'll see it fully, we'll come into it fully. A kingdom that is pervasive, that was long promised, that is perfect, that is permanent. This is the amazing gift that came at Christmas. This is what the the birth of this glorious king would mean for us. But Finally, so importantly, this kingdom is given passionately, passionately. Look at this last line and just try to wrap your mind around it. Just try to let this really soak in. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Imagine you're a child child of a single mother who has remarried. And he's never said it in so many words, but you know her new husband, he just doesn't like you. He doesn't want you around. He's cold, he's harsh, he's quick tempered. You've heard him fighting with your mom behind closed doors and you know it's about you. She loves you, but to him you're a burden, you're an inconvenience, you're an interruption, you're excess baggage that came along. Christmas comes and your mom reaches under the tree and brings out this big box, exquisitely wrapped, a big bow on top and the moment she pulls it out, you see your stepdad's eyes roll and he grumbles under his breath. You open it to find a fantastic gift. It's, It's just what you've always wanted but the whole time you're opening, your stepdad is half turned away, kind of glaring at you. You thank him and he he says, you're welcome, but, but he follows it up with a lecture. Do you know how much this is worth? You better appreciate this. You enjoy the gift, but it's tainted. It's twisted with guilt, right? Because it's given begrudgingly. How many of us have thought of God that way? How many of us have felt that way about our salvation? And it's 100% wrong. All of these things, this child that is born, the son that's given, the, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, this pervasive promise, perfect, permanent kingdom, was it costly All oh, more than you could ever imagine? And yet it was given with God's passionate joy. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That's what zeal means. This is his passion. This is his delight. God was not forced into saving you by Jesus who loves you. Jesus didn't find some loophole and get God into an armbar so that He had to forgive you, and, and so he rolls his eyes and, and does it begrudgingly. No. No. God planned your salvation, and He loves it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish. All of this, that, that's a guarantee by the way, right? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, the mighty one has planned to do this, oh, he'll do it. He'll complete what he sets out with zeal to do for sure. But more than that, it's a statement of his passion, his delight in it. First 1 Timothy 1:11 1, speaks of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That, that word blessed there could, could just as well be translated happy or joyful. The the salvation message, the gospel, is the good news that comes from the delighted God. Zephaniah 3.17. I used to wrestle with this verse. I confess for years I avoided this verse and I didn't really know why. But it just didn't make sense to me. It was uncomfortable. I didn't get it. I used to think think of God like that begrudging stepfather. I had just kind of been reluctantly let in that he had saved me in spite of my sin, but he wasn't really happy about it. And this verse confused me and made me feel uncomfortable. This is truth. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that the God you know? The God that exalts over you with singing? Think of this like in the the Jewish culture, this this is like a fiddler on the roof kind of singing and celebration. There's a party happening. He's the one. At the Christmas feast who, who, who sings the loudest, who laughs the fullest, and, and, and is giving the most audaciously generous gifts to his children, overflowing with joy. Look at, what he, look at that, how Jesus speaks of, of the father, the story of the prodigal son, Luke 15. The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robes and put them on him. Bring a ring for his hand and shoes for his feet. Bring the fattened calf and and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now is found. And they began to celebrate. Sound like a begrudging God to you? Does that sound like an angry old man who's been browbeaten into doing what he didn't wanna do? Not at all. This is how God feels about the gift of salvation. My son, who was dead is now alive. He was lost and now is found. Let's feast, let's celebrate. The Father and the Son in perfect unity, passionately, delightingly planned and orchestrated and played out this extravagant gift. As we continue to unwrap it and and recognize the depth and the breadth of it and realize, Lord, this is amazing, this is too much, this is, this is too big, this is, wasn't this expensive, wasn't this costly? Lord, this came at such a great cost. And so far from grumbling, his face fills with delight and he says, I know, isn't it awesome? Isn't it glorious, don't you see what I did here? I did this for you and I love it. All of this, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. It really is the gift that keeps on giving. This is the God who Ephesians 2.7 says that he saved us so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's a logical impossibility there. Do you see it? For eternity, God will be proving the limitless, infinite riches of his grace. He's going to show the extent of that which has no end. And how is he going to do it? He's going to put it on display in kindness toward us who are in Christ Jesus. That's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. What else is there left for us to do? To humble ourselves before him to receive this magnanimous gift with, with joy, to, to join him in his joy with, with parties and feasting with lights and, and music and gifts, to, to join the blessed God in his joy as we thank him for his amazing gift to us. So we bring our service to a close this morning. Uh, in a moment,